outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 241. And today in the show, Dan and I are breaking down our upcoming hunting plans and strategies, and then we're answering listener questions on topics such as October calling strategies, how to hunt in tough wind areas, how to break down and learn a new hunting property, and much, much more. Real quick before we get this one started, I want to thank our friends over at Lacrosse Footwear for their support of this podcast. As I've mentioned this year, I'm wearing the Alpha Burley Pro boots from Lacrosse. They've been doing great. They are a knee-high rubber boot. They keep me scent-free when I'm walking through the woods because that that rubber holds on to as little scent as possible. They keep me warm when it's cold. Today we got this big cold front pushing through. It's going to be in the 40s this afternoon when I'm hunting. That's going to be probably the coldest temperatures um, I've hunted yet this season, and I know my feet are going to be completely fine. My boots have 800 grams of thin insulation, which keeps them plenty warm. I've worn boots similar to this way down into the, the zero, you know, below zero temperatures. And as long as you've had a good wool sock on here, it'd be just fine. But at the same time, I've worn these boots into the 80s and 90s. And as long as you have a nice moisture wicking wool sock on, that's going to keep you comfortable even in those warm days too. So it's a very versatile boot. It can get you crossing rivers. It can get you climbing hills. It can get you climbing to a tree. Whatever you need to do, I've found that this boot works pretty darn well for it. If you'd like to check out some of the other options though that Lacrosse has, there might be another version that's better for you. You can go on over to lacrossefootwear.com and see what they've got. The last thing I'll mention is 
just that the new season of the Meat Eater TV show is available on Netflix now. I mentioned it last week. I just want to mention it one more time. It is a Netflix original. That's the first time a hunting show has ever been featured on Netflix in that way, which is a pretty big deal and something I'm really excited about. So head on over to Netflix, check out the season. It is great. I've not gotten to watch all of it yet. I've seen my Caribou episodes and I watched a couple more last night. I've been really impressed with it. I've been hearing nothing but good things. So if you haven't checked it out yet, I do think you will enjoy it. Netflix is where you'll find it. It is the new season of the Meat Eater TV show. Hope you guys enjoy that and uh, look for more to come. I, I do think you'll be seeing some more whitetail stuff and yours truly on some Meat Eater episodes in the future. So keep an eye out for that too. Now, to the show. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx and Today, it's just a good old-fashioned Mark and Dan podcast, and uh, I'm pretty happy about that. What about you, Dan? I'm pretty happy too, Mark. I, anytime that I can just... <laughs> Here's what I'm going to say. <laughs> my, my, my wife had to go out of town for, uh, for the night, right? And it is... I'm not complaining about it. I'm not, you know... You know, I don't know, complaining about it, I guess. But she went out of town for the night. So last night, I I was 100% in charge of the kids, all by myself. Right, no podcasting stuff was taken care of. Nothing other than kids was the fo- the main focus. This morning, you know, 5:30 wake up call. Kids are up. Feed them. Get them ready for school. You know, get everything together. And I feel like. I need to take a nap right now. So I, if my wife ever does listen to this podcast, kudos to you for doing what you do. <laughs> yeah, man. Kudos to you um, because I had my son yesterday all day, just myself. Yeah. And that was like, oh, man, how am I going to get any work done? How do you accomplish anything when you have a child with you the whole time? <laughs> like, right. I don't know right. how you manage three of them. Um, it's not easy. Put them to bed, and then that's when I started working, man. And uh, like eleven o'clock at night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's not no easy chore. Uh, so I'm glad that they are at school or daycare or wherever it is that they are right now. Uh, so you've got a little time to do this. Um, yep. And and to your point, you know, I feel like this time of year, especially, you know, I just need some buck talk like i i just yeah. when i'm driving on the road or something i'm just like i'm wanting to strategize about stand locations or talk about bucks i got on trail camera or something like that and so i always end up calling some buddies and they're working or they're busy doing family stuff and i'm like how come no one's ever available just to talk bucks with me? <laughs> so yeah. uh that's what we've got going on right now which is a which is a beautiful thing dan um so that's a, i want to do two things today i wanted to talk bucks talk deer talk about what we've got going on, anything that's happened here recently, what our plans are coming up. And then I put out a call last night for questions from listeners, and we got just tons, <laughs> got hundreds. Um, so there's a lot of good questions that we can try tackling. Uh, we're definitely not going to be able to cover all of them, but we've got enough to, to talk for hours probably. So right. that's my game plan, if that sounds good to you. Absolutely. I'm ready. Well, um, just before we started recording, you started saying, like, oh, I'm so excited because I got this buck. And then I said, stop. Don't tell me yep. anymore. <laughs> All right. Do you want to tell me about that now? Yeah. Okay. So here's the deal. 
I don't know about you, but right when you get your SD cards, you, you flip through them as fast as humanly possible, right? I mean, that, that's me. And what my computer does is I'll hold down the button flipping through them and it skips pictures if I'm doing it really fast. If you're going too fast, yeah. Yep, yep. So I went back uh, the other uh, – this morning actually after the – no, it was early this morning before the kids even woke up flipping through trail, trail cameras uh, pictures. And lo and behold, I get three pictures of a buck. Remember that shed hunting day where I found like nine sheds in 40 minutes, yeah. nine or ten sheds? Yeah. yeah. The big – the biggest antler I found – um, was a buck that I was kind of hoping I would have ran into last year. Um, just pictures of him, no, no encounters. And he didn't show up on trail cameras the first, you know, the first two poles. And so I, I'm flipping through these, uh, pictures, completely different trail camera, uh, early September, three pictures gone. And, but that tells me he's still alive. Yeah. And that historical data from last fall may come into play of where this buck is, is at. So I'm excited that I got, I, you know, I slowed down and down and caught these two pictures on camera, these three pictures. And dude, he, he put on a little time length, but a ton of mass. He's a, he's a big nine pointer. Nice. Those heavy antler deer oh, are just playing cool. Yeah. And it's one of those pictures that, yeah, the velvet's going to come off, uh, I would say in the next week or so of, from when, where this picture was taken and just a ton of mass and, oh man, I just, I hope I run into him. I'm, I'm putting him at a five, five-year-old or eh, maybe a four, but I'm, I'm, I'm guessing five. So how many different four or older bucks? Cause four is kind of your, your age, right? You're trying to shoot a four-year-old or older. Yeah. Um, typically at least what, what am I trying to say here? How many different bucks like that do you think that you've got running around based on the camera pictures that you have so far? Uh, based off the camera pictures that I have so far, I probably, and I'm going to, I'm only going to go back as far as September 1st yep. because yeah. I feel that anything before that is kind of just, I don't know, just entertainment to, yeah. to get that. Pre and then we have kind of, yeah, pre-shift. And we have this shift, right? So I'm going to say that right now I have one, two, three, four, five bucks right now on that – well, from, based off the last trail camera poll, five bucks that are four-year-olds or older. Nice. So you got Gnarly Charlie. You got yep. Dork. Six, then. I completely forgot about Dork, so six. Okay, so Gnarly Charlie, Dork, you've got this new buck you just mentioned. Yep. You've got uh, that buck you passed on last year that you saw popping up again. Yep. Um, what are the other two? Anything notable about the other two? The other two are, one is probably a, a, a mid-140s 10. I think he's a four-year-old. And then another one is just a gigantic-bodied, small i would say like one 130 class eight pointer just kind of a you know a buck that i don't know even as a even as a mature buck i may i may pass him you know what i mean uh just not doesn't make my jaw drop you know with all the other stuff that's running around 
Yeah, you've got options. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, well, that sounds like a pretty good, I mean, and, and that's just what you've got on camera. I'm sure yeah. every year, right? There's a whole bunch of new bucks that start cruising through during the rut. It seems yeah. right. There's, there's two, there's two big shifts on my, well, kind of three, but there's the September shift. That's a huge one. And then the crops come out and there's a, an adjustment. I wouldn't call it a shift, but an adjustment. And then somewhere around the October 20th, uh, time frame is when I feel that the deer that I'm getting trail camera pictures of and the deer that I'm seeing from the tree stand are the deer that I'm going to be hunting, Mm -hmm. right? Those are the deer that are sticking around. They're not going to another location. And, uh, that, I guess that small crop adjustment probably kind of coincides with the October, another October shift. So I don't know. Well, basically I'm going hunting this weekend. I'm going hunting next weekend. And then I should have an idea of what's a a really good idea of what's running around on the farm. Yeah. And how much time do you have budgeted for your rut vacation this year? Two weeks. You see, you still do have the two weeks. Nice. Yep. I wasn't sure if you were going to have to half that because of the elk trip. No, that elk trip was kind of like my wife's vacation for the elk trip. That was like a even trade type of deal. The, the wine trip. The wine trip, yep. yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, that was a good deal. Yeah. Um, yep. Interesting that you mentioned that you found, like, some bonus pictures on your camera that you'd missed before because I kind of had the same deal happen this past weekend too. Um, awesome. I s- sort of. I went out this last Friday. It was a really rainy day, and I thought this would be a perfect day to go out there. It was a good wind for the, for the Holyfield property and with the rain. I thought this is a good time to go out there on the four-wheeler and check some cameras. And hang a couple new ones, and I wasn't planning on hunting this spot for a long time anyways since I you know, hunted that first night that didn't work out. So um, so I snuck in there and pulled two cards and then hung two new cameras. But one of the new cameras I was going to go hang is in the spot that traditionally I always get pictures of Holyfield. Like come September when he shows up, this is one of the first spots I start getting pics of him. And I've been kicking myself because I was just so busy in – August running around like a chicken with my head cut off trying to get things set up I never ended up hanging a camera there like I usually do so this whole time I'm thinking man if I'd had a camera there I probably would have got pictures of him if he's alive Um, I just got to get out there and get this camera up so finally Friday I was able to do that so I drive over to this section and I get there and I walk up to the tree where I usually hang one and there's a camera and I'm looking at him like what like when did I do this I apparently had hung a camera on this tree in January, and I've not checked it a single time since. I don't know how that's possible because I've walked past it a bajillion times during shed season. Uh, I mean, I drove past it in the spring, turkey hunting, and I just must have assumed like that I'd left the camera out and, and not turned it on and just kept telling myself, oh, I'll grab it later, I'll grab it later, and then just totally forgot about it during the summer. Because I went up and looked at it, and when I pulled the card and went and eventually checked it, that sucker had been taking pictures from January like 10th all the way till September 15th. Ran that entire time taking pictures. Um, so that was exciting, because all of a sudden I'm like, oh man, this camera's been running this whole time, it's in a pretty good spot for summer pictures even. So I started checking it, and whole bunch of bucks on there during the summer, a bunch of deer that I did not get on camera anywhere else that were just showing up here. Um, a lot of like nice two year olds, maybe a couple nice yeah. three year old bucks. Um, and then into September, some hard horn deer, but no Holyfield. So it was a no bonus. It was a bonus in that there was, you know, 
a bonus whole bunch of pictures and some better looking bucks, like some deer that'll be really nice in a year or two um, that I wouldn't know were around otherwise, but no Holyfield pictures. There's one picture of a super big bodied deer, but he's just enough out of frame so that his, his antlers, you can't see his antlers, but you can just see this big body in the back of like the very back of the antlers almost. If it's very low light, um, that I'd be stretching saying it was him, but it was enough. I was like, Hmm, wish I got a better picture of that one. Um, on the rest of the camera, same kind of deal, young bucks. But, uh, as of now, no, for sure, mature buck sighting that I can definitively say, Oh, this is Holyfield or this is this buck or anything right now. It's just a bunch of young bucks and does. Um, the next day, or let me take back the day before that, actually, did I tell you about this? I don't think I told you about this. Nope. Um, The day before the trail camera day, I went out for an observation sit, and I just went on the ground and sat on a hillside off the pretty darn close to the road, actually. Just sat inside some standing beans at a slightly better angle where I could see the front food plot system on this property, and I could see all the way down this power line clearing. Um, So you can see the whole power line, and then I've got a second food plot way back there that you could see, too. And I just set the spotting scope up and watched it all night. Right. And with like about a half hour left of daylight, I saw a deer come across the power line, pulled up the spotting scope, got in on him, and was able to film it with my little digiscope adapter with my phone. Right. And it was a good buck. That was a, a what looked like a good buck. And in like the second half clip I have where he, he like looks my direction and turns his head. In that one frame where he's looking at the camera. It looks like Holyfield. It's got the right, like the main beams coming up off the head, angling out, curving back in, like that all matches up with him. Um, but it was so fast, and the quality of the footage is, is so low because of how far away it is. It's it's too circumstantial to say for sure. But that was right. enough to give me like a hmm, another possible um, possibility that it could be him. Yeah, that is it though. That's all I've got as far as Holyfield proof or evidence it's 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 very much like i don't know Uh, all right so in the in the whole in this this career or this uh, storyline that you've had with holyfield has he ever disappeared for a while and then returned so yes ish um so what he's in the, the first two years he was like super visible either on camera or in daylight from the beginning of September through December. In 15, he was like that. In 16, he was like that. In 2017, I wasn't seeing him, but I was getting pictures of him from September on. Right. But starting with gun season last year, he disappeared off the map. Man, I did not see him or get a single picture of him anywhere from November 15th on. But I found his shed in February. Um... So since last fall, he's been a camera ghost, a sighting ghost, um, except for one time my wife actually drove by a field near this property. I think I mentioned this last winter, but I didn't. I haven't been thinking about it recently. But she said that she thought she saw him standing out in a field in December last year. Um, right. So that is a possible sighting. Um, otherwise, he's been pretty much ghost mode. So if if I guess what I'm trying to get at is that. He survived long enough to drop his shed that I found in February, but was not once shown up on camera from November 15th on. So that makes me think that 
it's possible he could be alive and still just be ghosting on the trail cameras now because he did that for a handful of months last fall without me knowing. Right. Hypothetically, it could be possible this year. Maybe he just is totally on to like, maybe he just is to the age now he is not going to move into these food plots or fields at all. You know, that's where all my right. cameras are pretty much. I've got one camera that's back in a bedding area that I set in like early August that I'm not going to go in and check until I hunt back there. Um, so maybe he just is staying back in this cover. I don't know. Um, but it sounds like as the rut, you know, as October, as we go through October, we get to the rut. It sounds to me like over the years, just like most deer movement, his pictures increase and his sightings increase. Yeah, definitely. So <clears throat> the hope is that, you know, if he is alive, once we get to the end of October, that will happen and he'll start moving again or at least moving somewhere where I'll be able to see him or get a crack at him but you know um, don't go chasing waterfalls well, you, ex- exactly <laughs> how long do i stay you know focused on this deer that may or may not be around i don't yeah. know um you don't yeah you just don't know so to this point you know like we talked about last week i'm just continuing to stay in observation mode when i can i'm gonna sit out there and try to glasses these fields um i'm gonna check cameras every i don't know Probably not every week, but two weeks or, I don't know, somewhere between every one to two weeks I'll be checking the cameras when wind dictates and when rain does. And once they cut the beans out of this property, I'll just start driving the truck back there sometimes. I think, again, anytime I can go in the vehicle, that's going to make it pretty low impact. Um, And just keep monitoring. And if he shows up, then uh, I'll start doing something. If not, I will focus on this other spot, you know, these other two spots I've got to hunt. Yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of what I got going on as far as Holyfield and Michigan hunting and stuff. I hunted that new property again the other night. Didn't see much at all. Um, but I am going to go there tomorrow because there's a big cold front hitting. Um, oh, dude. Yeah. Dude. It's my two favorite words. Right? Cold front. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it should be still pretty cold for you by the time you start hunting this weekend, right? Dude, I'm going out tomorrow night. Oh, you are right. I got, I got, this is scheduled, right? So the cold front came through. I haven't, I haven't even been in a tree stand at all this year. Yeah. And I said to the wife, I go cold front coming through. I haven't hunted this entire season yet and I'm going out tomorrow. So the, my first sit of the entire year is going to be 11 days into the season. And I'm looking at the weather right now and we are literally going to have a 20 degree temperature drop from the high on Wednesday to the to the high on Thursday. Dude, the feeling that I get on a day like that. Like yeah. when you're when you're taking your pre-hunt shower or something like that, packing up all your stuff, on those days where the big cold front pushes through and all the conditions are like on point, mm-hmm. I have this like my stomach's churning, I'm like tingly when you just feel like this could be it, you know? Yep. I live for that feeling. Yep. So over the years, I would get real excited about that. But then there's the, the voice in the back of my head that says, listen, man, you're, you're going in and you're going to hunt. So you have to make sure that the strategy on this hunt is on point because these bucks aren't going to be running around the timber chasing does yet. They're going to be going from a – more than likely going from a, a bedding area to a food source and you just have to try to find some place 
it from that point A to point B where they're going to be cruising. And with this cold front, they're going to hopefully be on their feet, but you still have to remember time of year, right? It's not like it's going to be the rut. Yeah, this is this is mid-October. Things are, like you said, not like November. Certainly, you know, as we've talked about many times over the years, there's not a nest there's not necessarily any kind of like biological lull there's yep. things that are changing that if as a hunter if you're able to adapt to those changes you can still get into good action this time of year especially if that cold front happens but you got to make sure you are in the right places doing the right things so how much rain have you had up in michigan it's been a lot of rain the last yeah. week or so okay so iowa has had 17 straight days of rain and wow. And I think starting this afternoon, there's going to be no more rain for the next, I think, three or four days. So my theory is that these bucks are going to get up. They haven't been able to make sign consistently in that time period. So tomorrow morning, starting tomorrow morning on their way back to bed and getting up and going to the food source tomorrow night, they're going to start laying sign and a lot of it. A lot of Checking and freshen up those scrapes probably, right? That's that's my theory anyway. Okay, so you've got tomorrow evening off. You're hunting. This cold front's pushing through. 20-degree temperature drop. Um, last week when we were chatting, you mentioned the fact that based off of some historical pictures of Gnarly Charlie, you yeah. think you know how to backdoor him. Um, yep. Are you going after Gnarly Charlie tomorrow? No, not tomorrow. Um, I'm, I don't have the wind I need yet. It's kind of a northwest wind. I need a straight north wind or a northeast wind, and I think I'm going to get that on Saturday night, which – let me check here. I think – yeah, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to get that on Saturday night. So Saturday night is when I'm going to make a move in on him okay. and, and Sunday morning. Okay, so let's let's talk Thursday though first, and and, and actually okay. before that, I've been getting messages and emails from people complaining about you for not having sharing <laughs> for not having shared a picture of gnarly Charlie yet. I just, dude, if it was my own <laughs> if it was my own property, I would, but it's not, and You're I don't keeping know. Keeping things just, very tight to the vest this year. Yeah, you have to, dude. <laughs> since I've since I've started this podcast with you and started my own podcast. I feel like there's been a lot more, not only questions about where do you hunt, but from, from local guys, but just more people making themselves visible on the farms that I hunt, yeah. even though they technically don't have permission to be there. I don't know. Even some of the surrounding properties get it. And I'm, uh, I don't know. The, the thing about it is there's a, there's a 50% chance this buck is, isn't even on the property right now. Yeah. So I don't know. Tough shit guys. <laughs> <laughs> I can just tell you all listening that it is a very nice deer. Yeah. I'll tell you that. Um, okay. So Thursday then, if you're not going after Charlie, what is the game plan? The game plan on Thursday is to go to the local farm, right? I'm base or it's a local farm that, there's two sections of it, and there's a really good pinch point on public property that I access through my private farm, but my tree stand is going to be on public property. So it's just like the public piece is this really long rectangle that goes straight north off of a road. And if you want to get in there 
for in your uh, let's say if you have to park at the the parking lot for the public land piece you got to walk through the entire property and you're blowing everything out so two things are gonna you know two things and, and why i like to hunt there is if hunters do come in they bump deer right to me uh, or i'm on a an undisturbed pinch point on a on a crick that butts up against this huge field so these deer are they're really funneled down into this uh, this crick system that's in between two pastures in this field and it just a lot of, historically a lot of sign a lot of good deer movement i'm going to be up from that a little bit tomorrow night uh from on the down it's going to be on the upwind side of a bedding area but my wind is going to be if i go too far my wind's going to be blowing into the bedding area but with this north wind it's going to be I'm going to be kind of on the corner of it and, but off just a ways so that when the deer start coming out of this bedding area to this, um, to this acorn flat, which is kind of a staging area. And then eventually to what I think is going to be a food source right now, start starting here pretty soon in a cornfield that I'm going to catch a whole bunch of traffic coming out of these, these two bedding areas that funnel right to me. And that's the goal is just to watch. My goal is to hopefully watch a prey to deer walk by and just, or get uh, my eyes on something worth shooting the last two years, man, on this farm, really, really good. One sixty class 10 pointer. And, uh, he, he will definitely be a shooter if I go in and, uh, have an opportunity at him. Yeah, man. That's exciting. Um, if a buck comes by, if a buck that's like definitely a four-year-old or older, but yep. not like a jaw dropper comes by you on your very first hunt of the year, and if you take that buck, right, you only get one archery tag, am yep. I right? So that yep. would mean you don't get to take a stab at Charlie or Dork or any of these deer on your main farm. Would yep. you shoot that kind of mm, four-year-old tomorrow no. or no? Okay. And I, I mean, it's just – Obviously, I have options, right? And I don't want to make myself sound like this giant big buck killer, but the with what I have on my main farm and me not even hunting it yet, I will, you know, last year I passed two deer in the low 150s, high 140s arena. Uh, I, I would definitely pass that again, even if it was a four or five-year-old buck. I mean, it would have to be pretty special for me to skip out my entire rut vacation chasing some world-class deer on my other farm yeah well you know how it is in iowa as i understand it there's booners behind every tree every so, tree um, yeah. and there's no there's i'm the only hunter in the entire county the booners behind every tree yeah yep, so just just let them walk man that's right <laughs> dude i got like five pictures of people i don't even have a clue who they are on on my main farm just walking around out in the woods just wearing so. nine finger chronicles t-shirts <laughs> yeah right <laughs> <laughs> oh man what would you do if you saw someone that was trespassing on your property but they're wearing like a nine finger nation shirt um would you be pissed or would you be kind of irritated but then like but they're a fan i'll let them go <laughs> oh no way i'd sell them out i'd throw them right <laughs> underneath the bus call call dnr well you heard it here folks <laughs> <laughs> don't cross the line Right. Oh, man. Okay. So Thursday plan going on this new property. What about the weekend then? Okay. Well, the weekend is 
down at the main farm, basically setting up cameras or uh, checking cameras. I got f- uh, four more cameras I need to hang up and get those in some historically good spots. I'm going to be hanging a camera when I go in on my gnarly Charlie hunt. And I'm trying to think just ch- I'm going to hunt Saturday morning, check all my trail cameras or all but three of them. Cause the other three are, you know, only, only going to check those when I go in and hunt, but we will see what they say and I'll make, I'll make a move off that. If I don't have anything, you know, real, I don't know, substantial on those cameras, then I'll, I'll go in, I'll make a move on gnarly Charlie and I'm going to leave that tree stand up right there. And it's going to be there for the the season then. So the Saturday morning hunt is not the gnarly Charlie hunt. Um, it might, it might be, it might be. It just depends on wind direction. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, tell me this. I want to understand what your first hunt on Charlie will look like. So whether it's Saturday morning or Saturday night or Sunday morning, whichever day you get the right wind, can you like talk through this scenario for me? Because you mentioned that you think you've got this this good idea of how to get tight to where you think you might be bedded. I'm curious how you're going to get in there, what the actual setup's going to be. So, I mean, it's going to be an it's going to be awkward. I'll put it that way. And the reason I say that is because I have to u- be creative in my access route because I have to I have to use some a, a crick to basically just make a huge loop and come in from a completely different direction, lower terrain and then work my way up this I guess a small drainage and pop up on a ridge where my wind is going to be blowing right back down into the valley, but it's, it's going to be the trail that I think that these deer are using kind of comes in from an angle. So it's going to be one of those quartering winds, uh, one of those quartering wind scenarios where if I have a North wind and they're coming up, if they go too far to the West, they'll bust me. But the trail and the terrain kind of pinches them all to stay to the east of where my stand's going to be. And and I should be able to get a good view of the valley below. So that's that's just kind of how it is. Okay. Now, are you going to, like, when you, if you go in there, are you going to hang a camera somewhere around there when you go in so that you can try to better understand if he is in there or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, I'll let that soak. That might be one of the cameras that I only check when I hunt that area. Yeah. Um, and I don't even use that data until next year. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. So based off of your hunch that you have here and that Intel from last year and the conditions we have this weekend. Yeah. Unlike, uh, if we're going to do like the Spencer Newhart thing here, like on a one to 10 scale, how would you rank like your optimism as far as like chances of, of a mature buck encounter or shot this weekend or like these next three days? I mean, my optimism is at an all time high, but that doesn't translate into, you know what I mean? That doesn't translate <laughs> into anything really. Yeah. I mean, I feel that if I play my cards right, I will run into something. What particular deer? I don't know, but it's a good betting area. Um, and it's in where I'm going to be setting is in between a, a good bedding area and a, and a really good food source 
on another kind of staging area. That's an oak flat before it gets to a crop field. And I tell you, man, if I do it right, I'm, I'm confident I'll see something, but I, you know, who knows what bucket is these, these deer aren't like on my farms in the country that I hunt in, it's not like what you, what you read about on, let's say like Dan Infault, where he hunts specific buck beds over and over and over again. These deer don't have specific beds and they will, they will go to an area and find whatever they're most comfortable with. Now, this area could be two, three, four acres, or it could be like my farm, which there's several different ridges and it just depends on how far they want to walk almost. It's not like they're going back to the same bedding area every single day because the wind is different every single day. Interesting. Um, I, and that's why I, to the listeners of this podcast is a lot of people try to take, um, strategy away from someone else who's been really successful. And I'm not trying to take anything away from those people, but the deer are not doing the same exact thing on your property that they're doing on my property, right? You have to be able to take away principles and use those principles. Like I, I can't, I'm not going to sit here, Mark, and tell you how to hunt. I might be able to throw some ideas your way. And I don't think that you're going to be able to give me advice on how to hunt my property specifically. I mean, specifically, right? We yeah. can take, we can give each other some ideas, but man, the deer on my farm are not doing what the deer, let's say in Wisconsin marshland are doing or, or South Dakota you know, yeah. where there's no trees, you know what I mean? Everybody yeah. has to, has to use their brain. Yeah. It's kind of the, the trust and verify kind of deal. Right. We're taking these ideas, trust that it works for these people and their situations, but then you need to see, okay, can this be applied to my situation and circumstances? You need to verify that by way of observation, trial and error, um, and all that kind of stuff that, like you just said, that applies to anything that you say, or I say, or any of our guests say, um, but but that is, I guess, um, yeah, I guess that just kind of applies to everything. So, I mean, you could take away, uh, for example, if I said, Mark, you need to get downwind of that bedding area. That's, that's a very generalized statement that is always good for hunting a buck during the rut, right? Get downwind of that bedding area, right? Anybody can take, take that away, but I don't know if that bedding area is on a river bottom or if that is on a ridge or where if that's yeah, on a field high, edge even low exactly it, yeah 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 this is true this is important thing to, to to kind of qualify anything we talk about so um yeah so i want to pivot a little bit dan unless you've got any other major updates on your hunts no 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 but my question is and i know you kind of roughly went or you know very high level went over it but I mean, what is, what is your strategy on your Michigan farm from kind of on a macro level? I mean, are you, are you just going to sit back and, and wait or are you going to be aggressive on some of these other, I know, I know you mentioned you were going to kind of just wait on your, your local or your, your property and then go hunt this other property. But are you making any type of big moves with this cold front coming through? 
Yeah. So to your first point, the the macro strategy on the, like there's there's three properties that I've got to hunt in Michigan. Basically, I've got a bunch of other kind of handful of other small spots I can hunt here and there, but I have three kind of main quality options. I've got the Holyfield Farm. I have this new big permission property that's on the west side of the state, and then I've got our northern Michigan deer camp up there. So my Holyfield strategy, as I kind of mentioned earlier, is to basically check cameras and on nights when I can swing it, drive out to this area and observe the fields and down the power line and stuff and try to see, is Holyfield alive? Is he moving? Otherwise, I'm staying out of there completely until around Halloween. Gotcha. Once Halloween hits, then I'm going to hunt it hard, assuming that I think Holyfield's alive at that point. So probably from like the 30th or 31st through the 7th of November, I've got kind of budgeted to hunt every day on that property. And I'm going to be focusing on these bedding area spots that I've set up over the last two years where I had my close calls of Holyfield last year and a bunch of other bucks, you know, should have shot them last year in one of these stands. This summer I went in there and prepped and fixed up three new locations back there that in past years I never used to hunt back there. And then two years ago I all of a sudden discovered, oh, you're an idiot, Mark. You should have been hunting here during the rut. This is where it's really happening. So that's my game plan for that first week in November is to hunt that back area. If Holyfield's alive, I think that's going to be where I'll get a shot at him. And then on the 7th of November, I'm going to the other property and uh, the meat eater crew, Renella and those guys are coming down and hunting that property with me for a week. Um, and we're going to be filming that for a show. So that's the first two weeks of November, one week after Holyfield, one week on this new property. And then after that, going up to my Northern Michigan deer camp for the gun season trip that I always do. That's what November looks like. Um, so up between now and then, though, between now and that October 30th-ish time frame when I'm going to start hunting Holyfield, I'm kind of just doing a little bit of bouncing around. I'm uh, doing the observation, as I mentioned, for the Holyfield property. On the days that look good where I think I definitely should be hunting, I'm going to be going to the new property and kind of dabbling there. I don't necessarily want to push into the very best stuff. Um, I feel like there's enough kind of safer locations that I can get into just to learn. You know, I'm just, I just it's, it's a big property. It's a new property. Um, so I just want to kind of learn it, observe, see what the ebbs and flows are of this area. Um, but when I like this cold front hunting or this cold front coming this week, I'm going to go to that new property and I'm going to hunt one of the better sections, um, on one of these little food sources tight to a bedding area that I can sneak into. Um, so I'm going to be doing that kind of thing. And then a day here and there, going up to the northern Michigan property just to, again, get a couple hunts in there, check cameras, see what's going on. Um, so I'm not really swinging for any fences yet between gotcha. now and then. It's basically going to be learn the new property, observe the Holyfield property, get some hunts in, um, want to hit some public land stuff. Furter's going to come down next week. We're going to do a little bit of public land, running, gunning. We're going to go up to the deer camp in northern Michigan for a day and a half, do some stuff up there. Um but this brings me to another kind of thing I need to talk about, which is kind of my first um, encounter with the, the, well, not my first encounter, but, you know, we talked about before I had kids, before I had a son, yep. um, how that's going to impact my hunting and how it's going to impact yep. my ability to travel and all these kinds of things. And I knew it would impact things. I knew it would make things more difficult, but I wasn't exactly sure how I was going to react to that, how my plans would change because of that. Um, 
so now something is changing because of that. Um, as you, we've talked about in September, I was gone a ton. Yep. I was gone. And even in August, right. I, I, I was gone for a week and a half in August on some, um, non-hunting, but other kind of work related trips. Then September I was gone. I think it was 20 days out of the 30 days in September I was gone. Yep. And then in October I had planned this like nine or 10 day trip to the boundary waters to Minnesota. Then I had a five or six day trip to Nebraska. Um, and then the rut starts right then. And then it's, you know, three weeks nonstop between doing all those things I just told you about. Yep. So I got home from Montana and I'm looking at my calendar. I'm like, holy smokes, my wife's been by herself basically for almost three, basically three weeks. I'm going to be home for seven days and then take off again for this boundary waters hunt. Um, meanwhile, she's trying to work cause she works from home. So she's supposed to be doing work while she's at home, but she's taking care of our, our baby the whole time. Um, so over the past week or when I got back from Montana, I started thinking about this and I'm like, how can I possibly take off again for another 10 days or whatever it might be after just being home barely at all and not seeing my son hardly ever and not really contributing as a member of the household. Um, so I have decided to postpone the Minnesota boundary waters hunt to next year. I just don't see how I could possibly leave for 10 days right now and then be home for four and then go on this, you know, three and a half weeks of, of different rut obligations I have. Um, I just, there's just no way I could do that and still have a wife and son when I get back home. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, and just, you know, put my wife in such a tough position. So it's a, it's a huge bummer because it's a trip that I was really excited about. It's something we've talked a good amount. People are really interested in it. Um, and I wanted to help bring attention to the Boundary Waters area and some of the things going on right now and the threats it's facing. Um, so like, I'm really disappointed that I have to do this, and I feel bad about it. Um, but it's one of those things I think as, as a father, this is one of those things where, yeah, this is my job, but also I still need to find ways to balance it in the right way. Um, yeah. And I feel like this is one of those things I had to do in order to to prioritize my family in some way, you know? Yep, absolutely, man. It, and, you know, I – I've talked with some of these other guys who are quote unquote in the industry, similar to yourself. Uh, and although you don't produce a television show, these guys, they are gone for over 200 days a year, if not more going on hunts, uh, producing their television shows and they have kids, wives and kids at home. Right? So it's like one of those things where I think a lot of people, who say, hey, I want to get into the hunting hunting industry, they don't understand that if, you know, yeah, going on all these hunts would be completely awesome. However, there there's a lot of sacrifice that's ha- that has to be made as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's not not easy. And I'm not I'm not traveling that much, though my travel certainly is ramping up with all the new yeah. stuff going on these days. And that's something I know I'm going to be increasingly, you know, trying to deal with and balance. So um yeah, so that's that's what's going on. So I'm not doing that hunt. So because of that, I'm gonna be around though all the way till the 25th of October, which is nice to be able to be home for almost a month straight, um, and then just doing those things I mentioned. Gonna bounce between the new property, northern property, observe Holyfield property, and get some quality family time in. I don't think I'm gonna hunt this weekend or the next weekend. I'm actually gonna take those weekends off and just spend time with the family. Try to do some things around the house. Just try to 
cross my T's and dot my I's and, and try to make sure everything's in as good a place as it can be before before late October shows up. Um, but but I do and I will be still wanting to talk about the Boundary Waters area. Um, so on some future podcasts and some social media content, I still want to talk about what's happening there because as we mentioned on this podcast way back in February when I originally brought up the idea of doing this hunt, this is this really special place, this incredible wilderness area in northern Minnesota. All these lakes and rivers and big woods timber and, and deer and moose and wolves and tons of walleye and pike and just incredible area. Um, it's the most visited wilderness area actually in the United States. And there are these two mines being proposed right on the border of this wilderness area that the water systems there, if there's any pollution or leakage from those mines, it's going to go right into this incredible wild place. And there's been this big battle over the past couple of years about getting these leases approved. And just recently here, the the Interior Department has approved, is, is, is allowing this process to move forward now. Um, so that's a, it's bad news on that front. It's really bad news on that front. Um, so I'm going to try to get some more information about that out there to the Wiretown audience. If you've been kind of following that, I uh, want to make sure you're, you're up to date on what's happening and how, you know, you might be able to make your voice heard because I am going to go do this hunt next year. It seems like an absolutely amazing place. And, uh, and I want to make sure, and I think we, we all should try to make sure that places like that and experiences like that, you know, are still available. Um, for, for your kids, Dan, or my kids, um, for there still to be clean, pristine, wild places to go, you know, experience the wilderness. So yeah. that's that's my story in the Boundary Waters. More to come. Big, that's a big deal. Yeah, it is. Um, so hopefully we can still raise a little awareness around it. And then next year, leading up to that hunt, I'm sure there'll be lots to talk about. Um, Check this out. Yeah. Uh, October 18th. I am going to my very first ever backcountry hunters and anglers pint night in Iowa. Nice. We are start. We are starting a a chapter in Iowa. That is awesome, dude. I'm glad you're gonna be at that. Yep, it's a great organization. Yep. So I'm pumped that uh, a lot of other guys like myself have put interest into into that, and uh, we are uh, we've I mean we've already had some pint nights in some other towns which is great. Um, I, I haven't been involved in, in that section of it, but I know this one's going to be local and I will be attending it. So I'm pretty pumped for that. Sweet. October 18th. Where is it? Uh, in Iowa city. Well, it's not in Iowa city. It's in a town called Coralville, just North of Iowa city okay. at a bar called Gus's. All right. Gus's October 18th in Coralville. What time? Uh, I think it starts at six o'clock, six or seven. Sweet. Well, if you're a listener, go on out to the Pine Night in Iowa. Um, that's, right. that's That'll be a cool event. I've not been able to be to a Pine Night here in the last couple of months, but they are always a good time and a great way to get some like-minded hunters and anglers together. So on that point, we have many, many questions. Pivot. Yeah, we got to pivot to the questions because we got a little over half hour left to tackle about 2,000 questions. Quickly, though, before we move on to our Q&A section, let's take a second here to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Neil Hogger, a land specialist out of Wisconsin. And Neil is going to be talking to us about how the shopping process is different in areas that are famous for big deer. 
Well, Buffalo County is a nationally known county, obviously. Um, a lot of the land there that comes on the market and is sold really never make it, makes it to the market. So that's a major difference. In a county like Polk in Wisconsin, it's a top 10 Pope and Young County, excellent hunting, but it just doesn't have the uh, notoriety that Buffalo County has. So to find property in Buffalo County, I think the approach needs to be, you've got to get as close to the center of influence as you can. Working with a, an agent like myself with Whitetail Properties, uh, you know, we're moving and shaking in these counties all the time. We're constantly talking to people or people are approaching us. So if you're looking for quality land, I think you got to get to the center of influence. And that's a guy like me. Um, in a county like Polk, which is, you know, just as good hunting, you could you could search the typical avenues of of whitetail properties, real estate websites, land watch uh, type prop, property real estate websites, Zillow even, and you can find property there um, just as easy. But in an area like that, and probably for Buffalo too, I'd say get to a guy that is selling land. Uh, you want a land specialist, not necessarily a residential real estate agent, because they'll have the insights that you need. If you'd like to learn more. And to see the properties that Neil currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash hogger. That's H-A-U-G-E-R. So um, so I wrote an intro intro music for this portion of the podcast. Whenever you're ready, <laughs> just tell me. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. All right. Q&A, Q&A. <laughs> it's time for Dan and Mark to answer some Q&A. Dun, dun, dun. All right, there we go. Ladies oh, and gentlemen, man. it's time for some Q&A. Here's your host, Mark Kenyon. <laughs> All right, so we're going to have to do this as a recurring <laughs> segment, and every time you need to do that music. <laughs> it might be different. It might be different every time. Oh, I think it's terrific. <laughs> All right, so the first question of the day is, and I didn't take the people's names. I just copied the question, so just listen for your question. But uh, here's the question. I've heard you guys joke about the acorn cruncher before. What exactly was it? <laughs> I'll take this one, Mark. Yeah, yeah, take this one real quick, Dan. <laughs> Long story short, it was two two liter bottle, you know, like what you would get uh, bottles of pop in, right? The, the two liter containers of pop. Those two lids, right? The screw on lids with all these cuts in them, a little spring in between. And you just would scrunch those back and forth in your hand, and it was supposed to replicate the sound of a deer eating an acorn, which would cause other deer to come in to that sound. There you go. The acorn cruncher. Acorn cruncher. And it is, you know, kind of a comical idea. <laughs> but Absolutely. Hey, maybe it worked for someone. I don't know. There's if- probably one guy out there who shot a just a uh, – a giant like Booner using that. And he probably has that in his bag of tricks every single year. If that person is listening, please reach out to us. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to, I'd like to hear that story. Um, Okay. Next question. How often do you use a grunt tube in October or not at all? Is it just a waiting game? Go for it, Mark. All right. So for me, in October, the only time I'm using the grunt tube this month is just maybe as like a light kind of contact grunt, looking for a little bit of curiosity, at least in the early parts of the month. So, you know, if I'm in the tree right now, if I see a buck that's out of range, 
Um, I might just do a light once or twice just to see if I might be able to get them curious and maybe come in, but I'm not doing it aggressively and I'm not blind calling, you know, so that by that, I mean, I'm not just sitting there not seeing any deer, but doing a bunch of grunting, hoping to catch something's attention off in the distance. Um, as you get into late October, once it definitely feels like that rut is ramping up, that pre-rut activity, once you're seeing bucks getting aggressive with each other, maybe some sparring or, um, you know, different things like that going on, maybe a little bit of chasing even the beginning if that first doe and estrus popped in the last couple of days of October, at that point, then I will use a grunt tube much more as I would in November, which is... You know, if I see a, again, I don't like to do a lot of blind calling really ever, but if I see a buck, a shooter buck out of range, I typically start with a, a contact grunt of some kind, try to get his attention. If that doesn't work, I'll get a little more aggressive and do a little bit more of like a roar, like a roar. If that doesn't do it, the last thing I would try would be a snort wheeze, which is that kind of sound which is like this really aggressive like hey man i'm gonna kick your ass is basically yeah. what's a de- what a deer says when he makes a snort wheeze and that's very aggressive i would only use that during that time period where bucks are you know you know sizing each other up and duking it out over ladies um so that's kind of my grunt call progression that i'm using during that kind of pre-rut to rut phase um the only other thing i'd say about grunting is that if you do one of those things and the buck reacts positively and starts coming into you, don't do any other calling. Once you get the reaction you want, I would stop calling and just let him come. And then on the other side, if he reacts like really negatively, let's say I do that snort wheeze and he tucks his tail and like starts slinking away or bounds away, that's saying like, hey, he doesn't like that. Don't keep calling and stuff. You're just going to make the situation worse, I think. At that point, then I just quiet down and let him go his way and, and just kind of realize, okay, it's not happening. Um, that is my quick take on it. What do you think, Dan? Pretty much the exact same, man. I, I don't even bring my rattling antlers in the tree with me until, you know, late October. Uh, the, the, the grunt tube is always with me. And this time of year, let's just say for uh, this weekend, for example, something comes out of range and it's within my window of wind, so to speak. Um, just one, if he doesn't hear me, and then that should get his attention. And if it doesn't, I, I wait for him to acknowledge it or just keep on moving because sometimes they'll hear it and they don't care. And then other times they'll, they'll look over. And then once they look over, like you said, no more calling that will bite you in the butt. Yep. Yep. All right. So we are, we're on the same page of that front. Yep. How about this one? How do you hunt a buck that only shows up on trail camera in the middle of the night? Okay. So you got two options here, right? This happens a lot for guys who have their tra- trail cameras on field edges, right? You don't, I mean, you check your trail camera and you're like, oh man, it's, you know, it's, it's 10 o'clock at night. I can't, you know, how do I, how do I know where this deer is coming from? Look at, look at your map, look at the to- topo study that trail camera picture to where this deer is entering. Is he entering from the left? Well, maybe he's coming on the left side of the ridge. Is he coming, is he coming in on the right? Well, maybe he's coming from this area. Then if you really want to, depending on, there's so many different variables, but take your stand, do a run and gun and go into the timber a little bit more and set up and maybe try to catch him in a staging area or on a travel route 
before he gets to um, gets to that tr- uh, trail camera or on a terrain feature that will prevent you from being seen not only from access but setting up your stand from their bedding area. And then you can – I don't know. It, that's a little bit more aggressive. The other option is to – when I get a trail camera picture of a buck at night, let's say midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. in the morning – Dude, I don't even know where that buck's betting for the most part. Uh, and then I treat it like that buck doesn't even exist, to be honest with you, because you can't hunt a deer at night. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I would echo a lot of what you just said there. I think the two options are either number one, if you're getting a middle of the night picture of a deer, to your point, that means typically that that deer is not bedded close to where your camera is. So he's not living right there. So you can do one of two things. You can either, number one, do what you just said in the beginning, which is try to find where he is, try to get closer to where he is bedded. So if you've got some kind of hunch or data that points to the fact that, well, yeah, he's showing up at 10 o'clock at night here at this camera, but that's because I think maybe he's bedded quarter mile over this direction. I can get closer to that. And you could try making that move. Like Dan said, that's a little more aggressive, but you could try that or make, you know, get closer and closer and maybe move that camera with you and then keep tabs. And maybe now you're starting to get a picture of him just an hour after dark. Well, now, you know, you're getting a little bit closer to that. Um, now, of course, this changes as the season progresses, right? Because once we get into the rut, then that kind of normal bed to feed pattern is going to change a lot. But that's one option. Or the second option, again, echoing what you said, Dan, is the fact that don't hunt that deer until he does start showing up in daylight. So if you don't have the ability to relocate or if you think he's bedded on some other neighboring property that there's no way you can get closer to it, then I'd say keep the pressure low in that area until he actually is moving in daylight when you actually have a chance. Because if you hunt that property hard right now, because you're getting pictures of him in the middle of the night and you're just hoping one day he shows up, you're leaving your scent in there every time you are probably educating does in the area you're probably educating other bucks and every time you do that you're probably impacting your chances of success in the future for that buck because he's smelling you or the does that he might be chasing in november they're realizing that you're in there so they don't move in daylight or they move to a different property different stuff like that so don't screw things up until he does start moving in daylight. So try to find a way to safely check that camera once a week or something. And when you do see him show up in daylight or you do see him show up, you know, close to daylight, then I'd say when the conditions are right, you know, when you got the right wind or whatever, strike hard and fast when you've got that daylight movement. That would be yep. my my two thoughts. Agreed. Okay. Um, this is one that you answered on Facebook, Dan, but I have to say it. Dan, if you could, <laughs> if you could have your finger back but could only use crossbows for the rest of your life, would you do it? <laughs> finger stays off, my friends. I don't need it. I don't need my, I don't need my right finger. Got to use that compound, huh? That's right. That's right. Oh, I love that one. <laughs> and then, it, then I'd have to change all my settings, right? I can't be nine fingers anymore. I have to be ten fingers again. And there's no, no ring to that. Yeah, there's, and there's no going back. No, you're right. <laughs> um, okay. When you're doing your run and gun setups, how much trimming do you do? Are you forced to hunt areas that aren't as thick to allow you to get in and hunt them without needing to trim a lot? Or do you just trim it all up, you know, as much as you need to? Are you, you start this one. Okay. So I will say that I do as little trimming as possible um, simply because to the point he made, 
you know, it can, it's hard to get in and, and get a spot trimmed out without making a lot of noise, without leaving sign, you know, without branches being on the ground, just different things that could spook a deer. If you're in there and trying to set up to hunt right now, as little disturbance as possible is the name of the game. So I try to minimize my trimming, but you know, I'm also not going to leave a limb up that I think is going to keep me from getting one of the most likely shot opportunities. So I'll get up there and or I'm going to map out where exactly I think those shots are going to come. And I will, you know, take 20 minutes to very slowly and quietly cut a limb if I think that's going to be an important place. I do definitely take limbs into consideration when picking my trees though so if possible if i possibly can be in the right area and be in a tree that doesn't require as much trimming i'm going to do it as long as i've got the adequate cover um you kind of want to find that best possible scenario where the tree's in the right place there is some cover up there that's gonna keep you hidden in the tree but not so much that you need to cut down 50 limbs just to be able to get a shot um, that's not always going to be the scenario. So there's going to be some days when you got to trim more and there's going to be some days that maybe you need to live with just a tiny bit less cover than you'd like. Um, that balancing act is something that you're going to have to make that decision based off of the experiences you've had in the past and, and your comfort level with that. Um, that's, I guess my take. Yeah. For the most part, I'm the same, man. I get up and I, I try to trim as little as humanly possible. And a lot of it depends on where I think the deer are coming and going from. If I feel that I'm setting up relatively close, I'm trimming way less, right? And I'm probably not getting as high in my running gun setup because the higher you get, the more you have to trim. So it's, you know, these running guns are sneak attacks, dude. You want to, you want the, you want to get in and get out without the deer even knowing you're there. So you know, trimming a lot. I mean, th that means you're having to take a pole saw and cut like 30 yard shooting lanes. I'm not doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Just, it's really hard to get away with that kind of thing. Yep. Um, speaking of running guns, someone in here, I don't, I'm not seeing it right now on my little list, but I know that somebody asked if you, Dan have considered trying a saddle after hearing about the fact that I've been using it and liking it and that stuff for your running gun idea. Yeah, man, you know, the tree saddle is definitely the the fad or the popular notion right now in uh, for the running gun guys out there. For me, man, I don't know. I I like I like the idea of it, and I'm sure it's very comfortable. And I would I would have to play around with it. But right now, man, I just can't get over the fact that if something comes in when you're in a saddle, when something comes in fast and hard and it's on the opposite side of you on your non it would be on your dominant hand but your non-dominant shooting side so you have to twist all the way in the tree and that just to me not only seems like a lot of movement but just an awkward shooting form where yes that same kind of thing happens in a tree stand but i'm able to have stable footing and i don't know i i, I just can't get past that having to swing the whole body around on the tree. Let's say if a, a doe pops up and then a buck blows in chasing her or something like that. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. And that is the one scenario that's tougher out of the saddle. Um, you're right about that. Um, I will say that it has been much easier to maneuver in the stand for or in the saddle than I even thought. Yeah. I like in that uh, Montana hunt, on day three, I had a shooter show up 
right in, right in front of me and then go behind the tree I was in. And I was able to, way easier than if I'd been standing in a tree stand, I was able to swing almost 180 degrees around the tree to still be able to almost get a shot at him as he went around the other side. Um, now, that was my left side and forward side. So it wasn't the scenario you listed there. Um, but yeah, my point being, I think it definitely, I've found there to be some really nice versatility with certain situations. I haven't encountered the one you mentioned yet. So TBD on that. Um, for me, the other, the only other thing that you might want or not consider, but another reason why it might not be as good a fit for you is because of those bad knees you've got. Um, and I'm saying this, not, give you, <laughs> not, not trying to give you a hard time, but because I know you have talked about some knee issues. Um, my buddy Dustin had, he blew out his, uh, oh gosh, his, his ACL or MCL or some, some CL he blew out something, um, and he tried to use a saddle the other night and within like an hour of standing on those steps or what he, he was using some steps on the tree. Um, it was really, really hurting yep. him having that consistent pressure on it. So it's, it's, it's different physically. It's not like just sitting. You definitely do have more tension. You have weight on your feet or on your knees. Um, so I think there's a certain level of like physical fitness or health that is kind of important to have when using a saddle that maybe isn't quite as important when sitting on a ladder stand or something. Something to think about. Next gotcha. question. My stand has deer entering from every direction. I literally have deer come from everywhere during my first sit. How do I play the wind game in that kind of situation? Man, that's tough. I mean, I have some river bottom stands that are that are like that. And it sounds to me that he is in a circle, right? And he's sitting in the center of the circle. So my suggestion would be to not sit in the center of the circle and sit off to one of the sides closer to the, the line of the circle. And that way you're, you're going to be able to have, you know, play the wind a little bit better in, in that scenario. But if it's the only option, then I would say, man, get high, go in there and go in there and try to get, um, uh, some really good shooting lanes trimmed out uh, before the season starts or after the season ends. Not this year, probably because it's too late. But get as you maybe get a little higher, or depending on the scenario, this might be a good option for a ground blind to help reduce some of that scent. It's hmm. an interesting idea. Um, yeah, you know, that is a tough scenario and kind of along the lines of what you were saying, one easy solution would be don't sit in that spot, right? Adjust your location to try to better place yourself from a wind perspective so there aren't deer entering from every direction or taking advantage of some kind of terrain feature that might, you know, cut off their movement and allowing you to have a safe wind section um, or maybe set up so that your wind blows down a creek drainage or over a ridge or whatever, um, there's options like that. Sometimes you're just going to have to assume that you're not going to be able to get away with everything. So on some like this, my Holyfield property, it's got a very high deer population and there's some areas of the property that if I want to hunt it, I know that eventually there's going to be deer every direction at some point. And you have to go in there making some assumptions and make a sacrifice. Like, all right, I got to hunt this spot because it's really good. And I know I'm going to have to sacrifice something 
So just make sure that the section that you're sacrificing is the very lowest odds area. You know, be thoughtful about it at least and realize that, okay, I got to give up something. Make sure you're going in there when that something you're giving up is the smallest possible window of risk. Um, and then, of course, play your scent control as best as you possibly can. So do everything that you know of to try to minimize your scent imprint, whether that be washing your clothes, storing them somewhere that's scent-free, spraying them down with stuff, making sure that you are washed down if possible to make sure you're not extra stinky. Um, you can try different things that me and Dan have, like Ozonics units or Nose Jammer or Scent Crusher. or you know, There's a lot of options out there to try to deal with scent. Um, I think a lot of them help. I don't think any one of them will help you become 100% scent free, but they can help. So try some of those things. They've helped me. They've helped Dan. Um, I like your idea, Dan, of trying to get really high. That's something that might work or the ground get down low. That might help. Um, if you're in an area where you've got some terrain, you might be able to take advantage of thermals. So this might be a spot that if you're hunting in a low spot, maybe that as the morning progresses, you're going to have that thermal start pulling air up the ridge behind you. You might be able to get away with something in that scenario if you take advantage of that. Um, but again, it's just really hard to answer these kinds of questions without knowing the specifics. Yeah. So that's a little bit of general advice, I guess. Yep. Um, okay. Here's another good one. Um, Without the use of trail cameras, how would you break down a piece of property in season if it's a property you've never hunted before? Yeah, for me, for me, man, it just it all comes down to being mobile, right? I mean, if you if you don't have trail cameras, right, you're not going to use them. I'm taking that out of the equation. The only way for me to know what is in there and where, you know, where the deer are coming from is to go in and scout and hunt at the same time, right? You go in with the stand on your back, you, you walk in, you scout it and you hang up on, you hang on fresh sign. I mean, that's, that's just the first thing that pops into my head. The reason I say that is because if you're going and you're doing scouting in season, you're laying down unwanted scent, you're putting unwanted pressure on the herd and that all that's doing is just kicking out the highest quality deer in that area because they will smell you and they will alter their their route or their, I guess their pattern on that farm because of you so the best way to do it is hang and bang you know what I mean <laughs> I do that's uh dance life philosophy right there folks uh, <laughs> um yeah I, I tend to agree with you in that Without cameras, you are dependent on either looking at sign or taking observation data into account. So what you're actually seeing deer do. Um, so the first thing I'd say is scout the heck out of the map. Look at the aerial map. Look at the topo map. Try to identify the key things based off of assumptions you're making from that map. So where do you think that the food sources are? Where do you think the best bedding areas are? Where, based off the terrain or aerial maps, do you think that some funnels or pinch points might be? Just those basic kind of features that we as whitetail hunters like to key in on. Identify those best areas on your maps. Then I would dive in, and depending on how much time you have, like if this is like a five-day hunt or something like that, and you got to make it happen, and it's during the rut, um, maybe it's a public land hunt or this new private land piece, um, I think that I, I, I do not typically do this, 
but I know a lot of guys do, and I I could see why it would make sense, and I probably will do this more often when I'm trying some new areas out, like this new Nebraska place I'm going to. I might take this tact, which is take a day or half a day during the middle of the day, if, if you, maybe a rainy day or a windy day when you can get away a little more, and do a scout. Like Go and walk to those best-looking areas and see, like yes or no, are they what I thought they were? And knowing that you are going to make a big risk on that first day, you're going to blow some stuff out probably, but... If it's during the rut, you might be able to get away with that. It's better to learn a bunch on day one and bump a few deer versus, and then hopefully be able to take advantage of that and hunt informed the rest of the time versus going in blind without knowing anything and just sitting on the edges and waiting for something to come to you without, you know, getting any of that intel. So there's a balancing act you have to make right there. And it's always going to be based on like how much time you have, how much can you get away with, but the the long story short of it is learn as much as you can when scouting have your stand or whatever with you hunt observe adjust hunt observe adjust that's how i would go about breaking it down and typically i would be hunting from the outside in i would try to be sitting somewhere where i can observe and see an area and then see okay it looks like most of the does are coming out of that corner of the field or that clearing of the crp and then the next day get tight to that and then you're able to see back in that cover a little bit better. And then you see, okay, yeah, there's a buck that's cruising downwind of there. And then I can adjust the next day 80 yards further back. Um, that kind of step-by-step um, -step strategy is probably the way I go about it. Yeah. And uh, our guests that have been on this podcast who are, you know, the guys who go on public ground or wherever, out-of-state trips, a majority of the time on those trips is spent scouting before they go and actually make a move. Right. Yep. So. Yep. Gotta have, it's just, you need that information. Hunting blind is, and just waiting for something lucky to happen is usually not the way to go. Yep. Next question. I've heard Dan mention before that having a ginger beard helps kill big deer. I'm going to test this theory this season. I was wondering if he had any <laughs> tips on styles or grooming that might help. Also tips on how to deal with a wife who's not a fan of the ginger beard. <laughs> well, I don't know about your wife. My my wife doesn't mind my beard, right? She doesn't she doesn't like it Yukon Cornelia style where it's just giant and bushy. Mm -hmm. But Here's the catch 22, my friend. You can't <laughs> drop the hammer if you don't have the Yukon Cornelius. Does that make sense? Yeah, you, you got to have it first before you can shave it off. That's right. And then rut hits, drop the hammer. The wife, I know this is, there's probably kids listening, but be prepared. Earmuffs because, for the kids. <laughs> yeah, earmuffs for the kids. Be prepared because the wife might, uh, you know, get aggressive in her tactics if you know what i mean <laughs> when you drop the hammer you're saying when you when you drop the hammer yeah all right that's good or she'll or she'll or she'll barf yeah it's it's high risk high reward it's kind of that's like right. going in deep to the bedding area it's that kind of that's situation right. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on next question someone speaking of someone also asked if we think that mark's baby face scares off deer <laughs> that's i don't know possible. man like if I almost feel like if I hung around you freshly shaved that people would think that I'm trying to traffic you across the United States. <laughs> like you're like, my pimp. Yeah. Like, oh, hair. <laughs> okay. Okay. We got to go. I, I'll go down a rabbit hole. Keep, next yeah, question. Next let's question. Go. Let's uh, not get too off track here. Um, okay. Let's see here. What's another good one? 
Um, if you had to choose, well, yeah, that's okay. Here's sort of a good question: Do you feel that starting to concentrate on bucks early in your hunting career has hurt you or could hurt someone? You know, so does that or that's part one of the question. And then he says, do you think it'd be beneficial for new hunters to start filling a lot of doe tags before focusing on bucks so that when the moment of truth does come on a good buck, they actually have some experience and, and have been there before. Um, thoughts on that, Dan? Okay. Here's what I'll say on this. If you are a parent and you start your kid off with a giant deer, what does that kid really have to look forward to? Right. This kid is going to this kid is going to go one or two directions. He's going to say, well, man, I can't shoot a deer that big every year. And I, you know, I don't want to shoot a small deer, so I just won't hunt anymore. I, that's just what I see when I see these people, you know, it's like, Hey, look at Johnny's first kill was a hundred and, you know, 170 inch deer, 150. I mean, I don't, I think that if you want to get comfortable around deer, you have to just go and hang around deer and shoot deer. And I feel that for a new hunter, you go out, you fill those tags and then you stair step up. Right. I mean, you have to learn for me. I, I kind of, I, I don't want to say I regret focusing on big deer a lot because I got an education and I got it fast. And that education is worth a lot to what I'm doing today. But it, like for my children, I'm going to let them go out and do whatever they want. If they want to shoot a spike, I'm going to let them shoot a spike. If they want to shoot a doe, I'm going to let them shoot a doe. And I'll be there for any advice, but I'm not going to tell them what they can or can't shoot. Yeah, I I agree with you. And I do think that to his point, you know, go out there, do whatever you want, whatever makes you happy. But there, I, there's always this risk when the hunting media, us included, talks about hunting mature bucks or big bucks or whatever. We talk about that a lot. And if you're a new hunter and you're hearing that, it might be easy to think, oh, well, that's what I need to do too. But you don't. You don't. Mm -hmm. Go out there, have a good time, learn. As Dan said, take it one step at a time. It is not easy figuring out this whole deer hunting thing. So don't expect that your first year or in a handful of years, you should be out there shooting four-year-old deer. It's just not going to happen in most cases. So go out there and shoot the first deer you get a chance at. If that's, you know, if you want to fill that freezer, if you want that experience, that's awesome. Go out, enjoy that, get that meat. And then it does prepare you much better for the point if you do ever want to start targeting older deer. Like the question asker said, handling that moment of truth, there's nothing that can prepare you to better handle the moment of truth, especially if it's a mature buck, than having already pulled the trigger on a lot of other deer. Nothing, no amount of practice in the backyard is actually going to simulate the experience of a real live animal in front of you that you need to aim and get a, a good, quick, quick, clean, ethical kill on. That experience right there is something that I think that any new hunter needs to get out and just start having. So go out there and shoot some does, shoot young bucks, Get some amazing protein on your plate and and learn from that and enjoy that experience. That's what I would say. Word up. Word up. Um, let's see here. October lull. <laughs> We've talked about this a bajillion times, but we should yeah. just give it like a 30-second cliff note from both of us just for someone new. Do we believe in the October lull? Dan, no. what's your cliff notes? No. All right. <laughs> Dan does not believe in the October lull. 
I will give you a slightly more elaborate version of that answer. (laughs) (laughs) I will say that the October lull is not what most people think it is. Most people think that the October lull is this time period during mid-October where deer move less, and it's really hard to kill deer. That's not true. Research has shown that buck movement and deer movement in general typically tends to trend up through the entire month of October. But that doesn't necessarily mean that hunters are going to see that because there's a bunch of different changes happening happening in October. Number one, a bunch of hunters are now in the woods in mid-October. Deer adjust to that. They change their behavior. They change where they move. They change when they move. Uh, Number two, a lot of food sources are changing. You've got some crops that are coming out. You've got some crops that are maturing. You've got some crops that are um, not as attractive to deer anymore. You've got acorns dropping in the woods. You have a whole bunch of stuff like that that changes deer patterns. Again, if you don't adjust to the deer's changing patterns, you're not going to see that movement. Number three, the cover available in most areas is changing. You've got leaves dropping. You've got certain grasses that are starting to get matted down or leaf covers coming down that's opening up the area, opening up the timber in certain ways. So areas that deer felt comfortable moving during daylight on September 28th when there's leaves everywhere might not feel the same way on October 17th when the leaves are coming down and now it's wide open in there. So those deer are going to change where they move during daylight because of that too. Again, if you don't adjust for that, you're not going to see the movement. So I'd say that the October lull is a reality for a lot of people simply because they're not adjusting to these changes. That's my take on the October lull. So can you have success during the lull? Yes. If you're able to adjust to those changes and you have places and you know how the deer change, if you can get in there, yeah, you can definitely get it done. If you don't understand how those changes are happening, if you don't know where the deer have moved to or how they're changing their behavior, if you're just going to be going in there blind in mid-October, that might not be as good of an idea. You might, in that situation, put yourself in a better position if you bide your time a little bit until later into the month when you're going to get another pickup and movement around that pre-rut time frame. So it just depends on your circumstances. That's kind of my take on the, on the quote-unquote lull. Would you argue with any of that, Dan, or agree? I would not. Long story short, you're not going to kill a deer uh, mid-October when it's 75 degrees outside on a field edge. Right. Or you could. (laughs) Right. There's no rules. There's no black and white. There's always exceptions to the rule. Um, Is the that being said drinking game still in effect? And if not, can we bring that back? (laughs) Uh, Dude, I had to stop. Yeah. I had to stop. You haven't said it as much anymore, but – Back in the day, man, what last year, two years ago, when you uh, first started, I mean, it was, yeah. it was like almost like some people would say, um, um, yeah, right, um. But it was that being said, what do you think about this, Dan? <laughs> and and that being said, let's move on to the next point. <laughs> if if there was a person doing a drinking game, man, send my regards to their family. I'm sure they're dead. They had a rough year back in yeah. like 2014. <laughs> exactly. There's <laughs> a whole lot of podcast drinking. That's right. Um, okay. So I think that unfortunately I'm going to have to pull the plug on this one because I have another meeting I have to get to. I feel like there's so many other questions that we didn't get to answer. Part um, two. So we, we're, we should probably do a part two maybe here next week or something. We'll we'll tackle some more listener questions um, because I know there's a lot of good ones in here that, that would be helpful. So let's uh, let's throw a timeout on this one. Let's wish everyone luck this, uh, this coming week. And, Dan, um, do me a favor. 
kill gnarly Charlie so we can all see what this deer looks like, huh? All right, man. I'm going to give her a try. All right. Good luck, my friend. And we'll see you next time. Same to you. And that's going to do it for us today, folks. So thanks for tuning in. Hopefully you enjoyed this. We will try to tackle more questions next time around. Until then, make sure you're following Wired Down on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. And as I mentioned at the beginning, check out that new season of the Meat Eater TV show on Netflix. And otherwise, all I can ask of you is to get out in the woods, have a great time, shoot straight, get some back straps on the grill, and enjoy this most wonderful time of year. So thank you again. I appreciate your support. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close... You can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give them the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like them. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.